1: Give me the flat to dawn with plenty of tailing fish
3: and the perfect fly rod. And get ready for some magic. What an awesome piece! I got
1: one! Oh, damn, I got him, I got him, I got him! Join
3: Bonefish and Tarpon Trust.
2: Nice fish.
1: And help make sure that the magic never ends. Visit tarbone.org to find out how you can help. Oh, tarbone.org. Folks, please do us all a favor and go check out Bonefish Tarpon Trust and, uh, you know, do what you can to help to support them. You make a donation or join Bonefish Tarpon Trust and uh, help them to continue to be able to do research and protect the bonefish tarpon and, of course, the permit, um, any estuaries in which they call home. Welcome to Kayak Fishing Radio. I am your host Charles Levi, also known as Redfish Chuck. Uh, Maybe joined by Captain Alex uh, a little bit later on. He's got some stuff he's, he's got going on. So uh, you know, if he if he can make it, he will. If not, I'll hold down the fort. I'm sure we'll be joined by a few of our friends here shortly. Um, Folks, if you want to give us a call, feel free to do so, 714-816-4727 is the number to call, 714-816-4727. Give us a shout, feel free to to, uh, give us a fishing report from your local area, um, or just call and chat, ask questions, or say hello, (laughs) anything you pretty much want to do tonight, it's uh, fair game. Um, got a couple things that we're going to talk about briefly, nothing too crazy, um, maybe kind of a shortened evening of sorts, we'll see. We shall see. Oh, This is reminiscent of the early days of Kayak Fishing Radio and the Redfish Chuck Show, where it's just me sitting here babbling on and on and on about fishing-related stuff sitting here at my vice at the moment <clears throat> just tying up a couple of bait fish which I cannot stand to do honestly I cannot stand tying bait fish they, uh, they annoy me because they can be very um, tricky from time to time depending upon which one you're tying but it's the trimming part of the scenario that usually ends up getting me but I got a, I got a, uh, a secret weapon of sorts that I'm using actually right now. And uh, it's Polar Fiber Streamer Brush or Polar Fiber Brush, I should call it. Um, that comes from the fine folks at Just That H2O Products and our distribution. Um, <clears throat> it's a cool product. It's uh, Polar Fiber on a brush as as it sounds. Um, but you can whip up Eight fish patterns very very quickly very easily using the brush. Um, I may do a video of that one day here shortly. Um, kind of show you guys what it is and how to do it and all that happy jazz. But anyhow, um, so what's new and exciting in the world of Chuck? Uh, let's see. I have uh, I've started to. Try and lose a little bit more weight. Um, <clears throat> I have this idea in my head that I can get down to the 190s. I don't know if that's really going to happen, but there's 190 pounds on me. I haven't seen that since high school, so I don't know. it would be interesting. What do you think? My wife says she thinks I can do it. Well, that's good. <laughs> um So what have I done differently? Um, And how does this tie into kayak fishing or uh, fishing in general? Well, it will. It will tie in nicely. So after my trip down to Panama, I realized that I needed to start eating fresher food. I haven't been doing that as of the last week or so, but um, I definitely want to get back on that track. dead air on the radio is not good. I um, want to start eating fresher ingredients again and all that happy stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, get get away from the sodas as much and get away from the alcohol and the other stuff that tends to derail. I'm not going to call it a diet because I'm not trying to diet. I'm trying to change the way in which I live, um, so for all you big guys out there that listen to the show, listen there's hope. Um, <laughs> I was up to two hundred and sixty eight pounds at my heaviest, and i'm down i'm I'm down well into the two twenties, and uh, I haven't weighed myself in a couple of days. I'd like to weigh myself probably tomorrow and just see where I'm at. But uh, as a supplement to eating better and everything else, um, I also recently started to drink um, ketones. Am I, am I explaining this correctly? Like, you're the ketone expert.
0: Exogenous ketones.
1: Exogenous ketones. My okay. wife says, I've. They're, they're called exogenous ketones by Prove It. The company is called Prove It. So basically what it is is it's uh, pure therapeutic ketones. comes in a powdered uh, mixture. It contains a little bit of caffeine. It is considered a dietary supplement. You can buy it without caffeine, however. When you drink it, it puts you into ketosis in less than an hour. Therefore, you it starts to do what? Ah, you burn fat as opposed to glucose. So there you go. It helps you to burn fat and lose weight. (coughs) We've had a bunch of better sleep. What? Better sleep.
0: Better
1: sleep. Better mental clarity. Better mental clarity. Energy. Energy. Clear skin. The list, the list goes on. You might as well just come on over here and just sit next to me and have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, uh, it's interesting. the uh, The flavor is interesting. Uh, I've I've kind of started to like the raspberry lemonade flavor. It it doesn't doesn't have like a really strange taste. It's almost like It reminds me of like a crystal light kind of, kind of like crystal light. So anyhow, uh, no artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Let's see. What else can we tell you about this stuff? It's got 45 calories per serving. Serving is one packet, which is 19.1 grams. No fat, obviously. No saturated fats, trans fats. No cholesterol. It's got some sodium it's got n- uh nine hundred and ten milligrams or nine or thirty eight percent sodium uh no potassium got some carbohydrates uh very very little six grams and it's got twenty four percent uh calcium as well but yeah <clears throat> good stuff has the only ketones that are just said what
0: prove it, ha- has the only ketones. prove it
1: has the only ketones.
0: That are- that
1: are bio-identical to the ketones that your body naturally produces. So basically all you're doing is you're just putting ketones into your body to help you burn fat. And it gives you the other bonuses, which is the mental clarity, the energy, and the other stuff. So there you go. I've only been drinking it for today is my third day. And so uh, I don't know be honest with you i don't I don't know that I've felt anything different, but I don't think that I should in, in three days but I have seen the results of drinking ketones from my wife from a couple of friends of ours and family members who have started to do the same thing and uh yeah, good stuff there's a sale. Tonight until midnight on the ketones. So if you would like to try ketones and see if it works for you, you should get a hold of my wife, Jessica, on Facebook. Right? There you go. So there's that. What else is doing exciting besides dietary stuff? Nothing. Nothing. The damn wind won't stop blowing. It's cold one day. It's warm the next. It's cold for three or four days. Then it's warm for a day or two. Then it's cold again. So our fish don't really know what the hell's going on. Uh, Shad have showed up. The shad run has showed up in the St. Johns River. And let me tell you about shad. The interesting thing about shad is that it is one of the only species of fish that you can catch inshore i.e., the St. John's River, so it's really freshwater. Um, but they come from the saltwater, for those of you that did not know that. They actually migrate south. They travel down south along the Atlantic coast and then they make their way into the St. John's River uh, through Jacksonville area. Once they're into the St. John's, they head all the way down towards us here on the Space Coast, which is about the furthest south that you'll find them in the St. John's. And uh, they do their spawn. It's believed that they do their spawning, and then they turn around and leave. So it's uh it's pretty remarkable, actually, that we have <clears throat> this fishery of species that, I mean, for all intents and purposes, uh, swim for their ever-loving lives, since they're bait fish, um, all the way down the coast to make it down here just to do their spawn, to turn around and go straight back. So uh, very interesting. Now, how would one possibly go and try and locate said shad? You might say to yourself, I would respond to that by saying, well, there's a few different ways you can try and locate yourself some shad. One way would be to uh, hire a local guide to take you out shad fishing. Or if you're the adventurous type like myself, uh, you can head down to the St. John's River. And put a kayak in or paddleboard or small boat and then work your way down the river until you start to see them roll. They'll actually come up and roll a little bit, much like a a juvenile tarpon. And uh, once you've located them, you can catch them on small flies. You can catch them on um, crappie jigs. You can catch them on minnows. Um, They'll take a variety of different baits. I like to get them on a the fly rod. They're fun. They're, they're very, very much like a juvenile tarpon. When you hook them, they'll come up and jump um, and make, a, make for a fun fight for sure. Um, and <laughs> I know some folks who have used them for cut bait in the intercoastal at some point. So if you decide you wanted to keep a couple of them to do that with, that's, that's okay too. I suppose. Um, but yeah, shad. So pretty interesting really to be able to go out and target a fish that traditionally just cruises down along the shoreline, I mean down along the uh, coast and uh, makes their way into Jacksonville. It's pretty remarkable really that they that they make such a long trip um, only to turn around and try and make it back. So you got to think Shad basically is like a mullet. Everything will eat a shad that can eat that can fit it in its mouth, so um pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. I am so thankful that right now I am joined by James Page.
3: North Side Represent. North
1: Side, North side Represent. How are you, sir?
3: I'm good. It is above freezing. I am wonderful.
1: It is above freezing. It's cold here in Florida today. It's been cold here the last couple days, really. Um, Define cold, please. uh, Define cold. Okay, so when I wake up in the morning and I walk outside and I can see my breath, it is cold. (laughs) If I feel like I need to put on a hooded sweatshirt, it is officially cold. Jeans and a hooded sweatshirt.
3: I guess by Florida standards, that would be cold.
1: Yeah. Close, close toed shoes, which I go to work, um, in a factory, so I can't wear flip-flops. But when you walk outside and you know you should have shoes on, it's pretty, it's pretty chilly. And I, and I know it's no. not like, it's not super cold, but Whatever.
3: And I do know that for certain parts of Florida that wearing shoes is a challenge.
1: It is. I I prefer to uh, wear flip-flops whenever possible. Um, Always have. Always Probably always will. I used to run around a lot just straight barefoot. But good old diabetes had stopped me from doing that. And my feet, my nerves and my feet just, I'm, I'm like a wuss. I can't even walk across the yard. Forget about Dude, walking across much, the concrete street.
3: There's too many cooties in the world to walk around barefoot anymore. That's that's out.
1: No, nah, you haven't lived until you've had Circle K feet, Jiffy feet.
3: I'm okay with that. Just saying.
1: You don't have Jiffy feet, sweetheart. Your feet are beautiful. You're welcome. Anyway... So, James, I'm sitting here at the vice right now contemplating why I do it to myself. Why in the world do I bother to tie bait fish patterns?
3: Uh, because they catch fish.
1: I hate tying them.
3: I understand. You were talking about shad. Were you going to tie shad patterns too? Uh,
1: actually, I have literally like 30 shad flies that I've tied probably like three or four years ago that I still have. So I'm pretty set on shad flies. Here, listen, if you're listening to the show and you tie flies and you want to tie a shad fly, let me explain to you how easy this is. Get yourself a small number six or a number eight size hook, just a regular old little J hook. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It's a shad, right? Um, Get yourself some cactus chenille. In bright colors, chartreuse, white, pink. Um, yeah, basically, those three colors are my favorites chartreuse, white, and pink. And tie yourself a small tail section of cactus chenille. That's right. Use your cactus chenille as a tail. Got it? <laughs> tie it off. Got it. Tie it off <clears throat> as a tail. Then Palmer said cactus chenille forward to a set of bead chain eyes or very, very small lead eyes tied off.
3: Can you use a cone? You could
1: use a cone, yes. You could use a cone okay. if you should so desire to do so. The idea, with Sh- here's how it works. So shad typically feed on or near the bottom. They will take it they will strike near the surface as well, but it's been said by old Florida crackers I've spoken to that if you're not catching the little freshwater mussels and little clam shells and stuff like that on the bottom, you're not doing it right. You should You should literally be scraping along the bottom almost with your fly um, or your little jig presentation in order to get that strike. Make sense?
3: It does. You want to fish deep. Do you fish slow and deep or just deep?
1: Slow and deep is what I found to work the best. Uh, Two years ago, I did quite a bit of shad fishing and um, did really, really well, um, really slowing down the presentation, like super, super slow. And uh, they're fun. They're they're super fun to catch. Go ahead.
3: How deep is the water that you're fishing for said Shannon?
1: Anywhere between six and eight feet. Sometimes it's a little shallower, but yeah, anywhere between six and eight feet. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit shallower. Just kind of depends on what section of the river you find them. Uh, I I found them around a bridge one time. Uh, They were kind of moving through the, the, the bridge pylons. And so the water was a little deeper there but they were aggressively striking small minnows and stuff, so you didn't have to let it sink to the bottom. You'd get a strike as it was dropping. Um, but then again, I have found them in areas where it was like four and five foot deep, but literally if you weren't scraping the bottom, you weren't getting bit. But the cool thing about shad fishing, too, is that your bycatch doesn't suck. Your bycatch is typically uh, big bluegill. Um, how did I just get an eye? I've got an eye. Stuck to my finger. Hmm. It happens. Not sure exactly where it came from. Well, I know where it came from, but I don't know how that. Anyway, sorry, squirrel. Um, but yeah, uh, bluegill, uh, speckled perch, bass, uh, tilapia, I mean, all kinds of stuff get, will be caught as, as bycatch when you're fishing for shad.
3: So, well, you'd be I mean, taking your five weight will you be taking your five-weight to go shad fishing before they leave?
1: Yes. Absolutely.
3: Because I saw Tammy and Alan posted some shad pictures on spinning tackle, which doesn't count, which I'm ashamed of Tammy for doing that, as masterful as she is with a fly rod.
1: Tammy has – Tammy hit me up the other day and said she busted out her fly-tying vice, and uh, (laughs) she – she had some choice words for those who have been supporting her in her new, not new endeavor, because Tammy, Tammy's a great fly tire, but for those who have kind of cheered her on for getting back at it because I like to see Tammy tying flies. I like to see Tammy doing anything fly-related. I mean, there's very, very few people, actually, truth be told, I don't, I personally know a few people who have caught Probably close to as many species on fly as Tammy, um, but not like I hang out with those folks. You know what I mean? The folks that I have met mm-hmm. in the industry and that kind of thing. Tammy Wilson has has caught more species of fish on fly than I will more than likely ever see in my lifetime. And Probably she's you getting ready put to together. go. To, yeah, more than likely, honestly, and she's getting ready to go to Alaska the guide up there for uh I believe three or four months and um she hasn't caught a pink salmon yet on fly but that's the only salmon species uh up that way that she hasn't caught on fly and so she's pretty confident actually she's very confident that she'll go ahead and knock that off the list so
3: i'm sure she will she's I, got skills yeah Oh, yeah,
1: mad skills. I, I've learned so much from yep. Sammy. And and <clears throat> it's it's really, really nice to have somebody with so much experience kind of in your back pocket as far as, uh, you know, if you have questions or, you know, whatever about specific species and what to do and how to target them or whatever the case may be. Because otherwise, you got to rely on the interweb. And Lord knows that if you ask a question about a specific fish, you may get 15 different answers about the same fish, and half of those answers will probably come from folks who have never caught the fish before. No offense to anybody that tries to answer some <clears throat> of the questions on the interweb, but when I was talking about going down to Panama and going rooster fishing, um, or rooster fish fishing, not rooster fishing, because that would have been really easy because they were everywhere. Um, <sighs> Imagine that, throwing a fly to an actual yard bird.
3: Hmm. They would try to eat it. It
1: would be fun. No. So anyways, anyways, Panama. um, Panama, so, sorry. Um... We have one of those diet sodas? You can have to take the orange
0: wine.
1: Okay. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> that's the beauty of having kayak fishing radio done in the Levi studio is that my beautiful wife is never too far from me. So if I do need a beverage of sorts, she's always willing to help out. Anyway, uh, yeah, <clears throat> when I said I was going down to Panama to fish for – five roosters and tunas and whatever else we could find. Um, I got private messages and public comments from a lot of different people, which I really appreciated. But at the same time, I noticed something that I would say 30 to 40% of the, of the things that I was told to do were told to me that people would never caught one. So, mm. it, you know, it's, it's not a big deal, but it's nice to to get some help. Thank you, sweetheart. It's nice to get some help from time to time, but I will tell you this. The internet and social media has literally been a huge part in destroying fishing.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. That and pollution. And the reason...
1: What's that, that and pollution? Yeah, yeah. Well, and the reason why I say that, and I don't say that lightly, the reason why I say that is because there once was a time where you didn't tell anybody where you were fishing. (laughs) You wouldn't tell your best friend on a good day where you went and caught your 10 or 15 fish and whatever, whatever. Um, Now because of social media, because of camera phones and everything else, all somebody who knows the area has to do is look at your picture and they know exactly where you caught your fish. Like you He cracks right. me up. When, I see a lot of guys local that put up photos of them with fish and whatever, and it's one thing to, to blur out your background and your photo and color it out and all that kind of stuff. Pretty hokey. Like, I wouldn't do that. I would n- – I, I honestly – I've done it a few times as a joke, but I, would, I wouldn't do that. Why would you want to ruin your fishing picture? Like, why would you want to do that to your fishing picture? Just be better at taking pictures without showing off where you caught your fish, you know? Downward angles to where it's you and the water in the background, not you and the water and the tree line or the power lines or the buildings or the whatever that are, land, that are uh, uh, markers. Again, anybody who's spent any time on the water can look at it and say, I know exactly where you're fishing. Like it used to happen every now and again with, um, when the publications were really big, when mag- fishing magazines were like really starting to come into their own. Now nobody buys fishing magazines hardly anymore because most of them are full of crap. Most of them are 75 to 80% ad space a few decent articles every now and again, and then the fishing reports, which typically are very similar to the year prior because that's just the way that our fishery is. So there's not all, you don't really get a whole lot out of a publication like you once did. Um, so now the, 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 the glorious interweb is, uh, is the culprit for uh, areas being fished out Highly pressured, all that kind of thing. And then there's areas that I used to fish here here in the Space Coast to where I literally never saw another person, literally ever. Like not one time fishing in these areas have I had I ever had a guy paddle up on me, pull up on me, um, run a boat up on me, none of those things. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Now you can't hardly go anywhere. You can't even fish a ditch without having sometimes guys walk up right next to you and start casting literally right next to you in a ditch. And, you know, areas that, that used to be somewhat of a secret, local secret, of where you can go and catch ditch tarpon or ditch snook or any of those types of things. Because of Facebook, because of Instagram, because of all the social media and the fact that there's this desire to get likes and approval and everything else, um, those spots are, are, are beat to crap. They're, they're literally beat up bad, like really bad. And the fishing's just nowhere near as good as it was. We talk about it all yep. the time, about Pine Island, because Alex grew up on Pine Island. I've fished Pine Island for years and years and years and years. I used to fish Pine Island be- back before it was a, a brackish water estuary and the the lakes were freshwater, and they were full of giant bass. And so, um, but now, it only took a handful of anglers going out there and catching fish and putting pictures up before everybody figured out where it was at, and now it's just a free-for-all. It's a literal free-for-all, which is fine. I mean, listen, it's kind of the nature of the beast in anything, really, right? I mean, it's gonna happen eventually. Some the word's gonna get out and it's gonna you know, it's gonna become a crapshoot. But
3: Well, the population explosion along the I 4 corridor and the south yeah, part of Jacksonville. Help. You know. Oh dude, let's talk about what used to be nothing but apple uh, I mean orange orchards. Let's talk about how yeah. many people are moving into the Metro Orlando Orlando area. Let's talk about you used to be able to get from Orlando to Tampa how quick And there's times when literally You're sitting on I-4 Leaving Orlando And stop and go traffic all the way to Tampa Just about You know And the population growth in Tampa Well the entire state of Florida Except parts of the panhandle I mean you know The entire entire state of Florida They're six lane in I-75 Below um, Tampa down through Naples you know, there used to be nothing down through there. First time I went south of Tampa to fish in college, there was nothing down there. Nothing. You know, I don't even know if I-75 We went there at that time. It did. Yeah, it did. But it was, you know, four lanes. Go across Alligator Alley. But there was nothing. And now it's six lane. You can't even get through Sarasota. You know, rush hour. Sarasota, I-75, stop and go. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I mean when, we, just,
1: when we moved down to, moved down well, to Florida, my, my family, when we moved down to Florida back in um, 1990, <clears throat> we moved to Brevard County because my, my parents knew that it was going to be a great place to raise myself, my two brothers, and there was a lot of opportunity here in Central Florida, because of the Space Center and um, Orlando being so close and everything else. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I remember, uh, even back in the, even in in 1990, Brevard County as a whole probably had less than half of the population than it does now. And some of the areas that are the most desirable places to live, like Vieira, SunTree, um, some of the beach communities and stuff like that, didn't even really even exist. I mean, Viera didn't exist. Viera was literally cattle fields, celery fields, sod farms, and, and the like. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now there's million-dollar homes being built, on what once was a swamp, and there's Mm -hmm. neighborhoods of, you know, quarter-million-dollar homes, big, giant neighborhoods of quarter-million-dollar homes, restaurants, all this stuff. It's become its own little town, its own little city being built in areas that used to just be wandered by cattle. And it's funny to me that there hasn't been any major sinkholes in any of these areas because I know what that ground used to be like. <laughs> and there's no, yeah, yeah. Enough, right, there's, not, there's no way they brought in enough, right, there's no way they brought in enough fill dirt to allow for these foundations to settle and just that. that be that. That's the end of the story. There's, you, can't, you can't tell me that. I used to, listen, not that I'm proud of it, but another reason why I don't typically bass fish very much, again, is because I grew up fishing these cattle ponds in Vieira, and catching an 8- to 10-pound bass was not a big deal, literally was not a big deal. And I'm talking about legitimate fish, not it looked like it was 8 pounds. No, I'm telling you, these are fish that I could stuff both of my fists in their mouth. And if any of you guys, any of those of you who are listening that know me, know how big my hands are, to, for me to put both of my fists in, in a bass's mouth is a, is, a, is a feat. But we used to do it all the time used to do it all the time. I didn't know nothing about bass fishing. I grew up saltwater fishing. Moved down to Florida, there's saltwater and freshwater. So what do I do? I go to Walmart or Kmart. I probably at the time, was probably a Kmart. Bought some culprit worms and some worm hooks and some bullet weight. <laughs> and rigged up some worms the way that I saw in a magazine. Went out, probably an Outdoor Life magazine back then. Went, went out and... Uh, threw worms at bass and watched them eat them, and then realized quickly that these fish are stupid, and they'll eat just about anything you put in front of them. And, uh, but I would go out and venture out into some of these areas where these cattle ponds were. Some of those areas were uh, private property, no trespassing type situations, and some of them, there were no signs. And when you're 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, riding on a on a, on a bicycle with a backpack and a fishing pole I mean you you pretty much need to get told you cannot fish here for you not to go try and fish something so by doing that I used to walk a lot of these areas and there's there's a reason why I'm getting into this whole story so um I know I'm being kind of long-winded like I typically am the thing for me that 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 bothers me so much about what's happened in Central Florida, especially where I live. Not just with the in, with with the the uh, social media side of things, just the fishing side of things. If you drive through most of these neighborhoods now, you'll see no fishing signs. You'll see no trespassing, no fishing, not even for residents. Just straight up no fishing. Like sometimes they'll say no fishing no trespassing, whatever, residence only, or it'll just say no fishing. And I think what, what people are doing, and they don't even realize they're doing it, is they're, they're, in a way, keeping kids from getting into the outdoors. Exactly. You know, and, and progress isn't always good. Uh, uh, development isn't always good. We've got some callers calling in. Guys, hang on the line. I'll get to you guys in just a minute. Um, but, but progress isn't always a good thing. And I'll give you a good example of, I think we discussed it a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to bring it up again because I just saw another pond today and it made me think of this. When these neighborhoods in Florida are built, ponds, retention ponds, ditches, whatever you want to call them, small lakes, are dug for the fill because, again, we live on a sandbar, most of which is buried 20 foot below the ground, i.e. the sand, and then you've got a layer of muck, dirt, soft bottom, soft, soft earth, between the surface and that sand, so anyone who's ever put a well in anywhere in Central Florida and watched the water come, watch the uh, soot, the soot and the sand and the dirt come pouring out of the pipe as you're as you're digging the well, can see that once you get down about 20 foot, you hit literal sand, beach sand. Small there's small little tiny clam shells in it. I mean, it, literally, it is. It's the bottom of the ocean, or it was at one time. So anyway, you, they dig out these lakes, they pile all this dirt up, they build these houses, and now you've got this nice little retention pond that now makes the property waterfront. Right? Always cracked me up that it's water—it's considered waterfront property when it's like basically just a, a retention pond. The place for the runoff to go. But whatever, they can charge a premium because you get to look at a lake. Now, anybody wants to call in and explain to me why in the world anyone thinks it's a good idea to spray all of these retention ponds to kill the cattails, to kill the the lily pads, to kill the hydrilla, to kill the the duckweed, any of the stuff that, that naturally occurs in these ponds, if you have a valid, valid argument as to why that makes sense, feel free to call us, 714-816-4727. I'll wait. I promise you no one will because there is no valid excuse. There is no valid excuse. What happens when you kill off the grass, the hydrilla, the, the, uh, the cattails, the lily pads, and all the, all the rest of it, is you end up with a mud puddle. You end up with literally a mud puddle. There's nothing to filter you the water.
3: destroy the water quality. Yep, you destroy you de- the water quality. Oh, you destroy the mm-hmm. habitat. You compl- Go ahead. You turn to a mosquito pond is what you do. Yeah.
1: And then they have the bright idea as to, hey, let's throw some grass carp in here.
3: Even worse.
1: Even worse. There shouldn't be a grass carp in any pond in the entire state of Florida. Period. They're they're literally turning any
3: pond and yeah, any pond in the country. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But so I saw what happens when people feel like they would like to see the lake without having to look over cattails. I've seen I've watched retention ponds. That I literally, when I was a kid, stocked after a fish kill, after fish kill, after fish kill. I would restock them with fish from, the lake, from lake Washington, the St. John's, um, Lake Harney, um, Lake Poinsett. I used to go around, me and my buddies, during, during, uh, right after Christmas, we go around and collect up Christmas trees, tie cinder blocks to them, drop them off the side of a canoe out in the lake, create fish habitats. Like well, I knew any time of the year I can go and drop a a a, a crawdad-colored culprit worm anywhere around my little pile of Christmas trees and wail on some big old bass or drop a little jig, catch a big big bluegill or a speck or a warm mouth or whatever. We had, in in Viera <clears throat> there's a community called Six Mile Creek. That's where I grew up. Six Mile Creek, we Literally a walk from my house, I had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven ponds that I could go fish within walking distance of my house. And I knew all of them like the back of my hand. I knew the bottom contour. I knew how deep they were. I knew where the drop-offs were. When I first moved in, we used to swim in all these lakes because the water was crystal clear. Well, why was the water crystal clear, you might ask yourself. Well, I can tell you why the water was crystal clear, because it was full of grass. It was
3: full vegetation. of vegetation.
1: Guess what, well, guess what else happens when you have vegetation and you have, you have good amounts of vegetation. You have an abundance of fish. You have an overabundance of, of uh, mosquito fish. <clears throat> you have an overabundance of mollies. You get crawdads. You get everything that is necessary to support the full food chain going on in that pond. So I lived there from 92 through probably, what, 2000? Probably about 2000, 2001, 2000, no, 2001, 2002, on and off. And uh, Alex is back. Hang on one Captain Alex, what's up, brother?
2: What it is?
1: Chilling. We're just discussing uh, randomness, really. We kinda, I kind of got off on a tangent talking about ponds and retention ponds and lack of grass and vegetation, which is turning them all into mud puddles.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: So, yeah. So, Carry on. Um, Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, from the time that we moved in to the time that we moved out, or that I moved out, I watched <clears throat> the Homeowners Association decide, for whatever reason, that it would be a good idea to have these guys show up in these little John boats and do their little lap around the lake, spray in all the vegetation with their chemicals to kill it all and I watched the water go from crystal clear to chocolate milk in every single pond, every single one. And I watched the, the, the total, the, the number of fish species and the number of fish total just plummet, absolutely plummet. You could, you used to could go behind my parents' old house and throw an entire loaf of bread out in the water. And you would have literally no less than four, four or five hundred bluegill and and bass and uh, whatever else, all kinds shiners, wild shiners, all kinds of stuff would come and just devour catfish. Come and devour that bread in seconds. In seconds, a whole loaf of bread would be reduced to a few crumbs. And I've been back to the I've been back to those ponds with a fly rod in my hand. I've been back to those ponds throwing bass poppers and stuff, and have caught absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not not a bluegill popping a popper. They, they do that from time to time? They'll up and just try and eat the popper off the surface. Nothing, nothing. But you'll see fifteen, twenty, twenty-five pound grass carp swim by, searching for something to eat. You'll see precossimus and everything else. That you don't want to see in these lakes, cruise by. And you know, sometimes, sometimes uh, population explosions in areas have are, are do more harm than they do good to an area. Our area specifically is is a prime example of that, but. I just don't for the life of me understand why in the world anybody who lives on a retention pond would ever want their retention pond to not look like a pond. Like that. I, I don't, I don't get it. I, I really, really don't understand. And today I was, I was doing a, a delivery, delivering a, a metal roof down into the Sebastian area. Actually it was Sebastian. I mean, I was, the the street past Whitey's Bait and Tackle. So, yeah, it was Sebastian um, on A1A. And coming back from that delivery, I passed by a pond on mainland, and it had natural occurring vegetation in it. And would you believe that that pond was crystal clear? I'm talking, like, it almost looked like it was spring-fed it was so clean. In reality, it was probably just normally clean, but I'm so used to looking at dirty water that it looked like a spring-fed pond. Just just food for thought. Like if you live within a deed-restricted community and you're listening to the show, no matter where you live in the country or in the world or whatever, and your homeowners association does this, they go around, they spray, and they, they – do what they do. You might want to take a second. If you, or put grass carp in. yeah. You might want to yeah, take that, a second. See. Yeah, to educate somebody or go to a homeowners association meeting and maybe say something. Be like, hey, listen, I'm kind of tired of looking at a mud puddle. Why don't we not spray for a few months and see if we can get anything to grow back? And if we can, cool. Let's let it do its thing and see what happens. There's no – I think what happens is people – I think that people think that if they get rid of the grass and such, they get rid of the bugs. (laughs) And that's not the way it works. If you get rid of the grass and you get rid of the hiding places, you get rid of the, the mosquito fish and the mollies and the other things that eat the bug larvae, the mosquito larvae and everything else. And then basically all you've done is just given the mosquitoes a giant home where nothing's in there to control the population, which is probably one of the reasons why everywhere you go in Brevard County, literally now everywhere you go in Brevard County is inundated with mosquitoes. Not at this particular moment because we're in the middle of the winter and it just they just die off or hibernate or whatever the hell mosquitoes do, but just saying I don't know how in the hell I got onto that conversation from talking about social media and how so much of social media has actually done done worse for fishing than the positive side. But that's kind of where we've we've, we've been, Alex. We've kind of been all over the place, and which I know you're not surprised by because you know me well enough to know that sometimes I have a hard time concentrating on one specific topic.
2: It happens Yes indeed That moon is huge tonight My friend
3: It was mm. huge last night too man
2: That's a big moon yeah. Is it a Did special size last moon weekend? tonight
1: Yeah, yeah Alex and I went fishing
3: <laughs> do, do tell It rained here oh, last yeah. weekend
1: all right, so here's the story. Alex and I put in a kayak, or each put in a kayak. We went grade. we went bird watching. It, it just seems that for some awkward reason, the moon is full. It is beautiful. I'm actually looking at yeah. the front door right now. Anyway. Last um, night
3: was a blue moon, a super moon, and a blood moon
1: the super blue blood
3: moon this morning super blue blood moon with an eclipse this morning that was seen on the west coast more than on the east coast
2: yeah There you go. didn't we talk
3: didn't we talk about what that
2: was charles
1: charles We're yeah, yeah me and you, you me and you i oh, know me and you spoke about the blue you actually educated me on the blue moon situation i i did not I did not know where the blue moon phenomenon originated from, or where the name came from. Okay. I can tell.
2: So does, does everybody want to be educated a little? So, first of all, the super moon, which seems to be happening a lot lately, is when the moon's just a little bit closer, so it appears larger than normal, particularly at sunrise and sunset. So, supermoon is one thing we got going on. And that's just the moon's just the way we wobble and it wobbles and it's just a little bit closer. So, the blue moon, which is another thing we got going on, is a little bit more unique. And a blue moon is actually two full moons within one calendar month. So, this month, I think on the first or the second, uh, Of January We had a full moon Basically right around the first of the year We had a full moon And then yet again Still in the month of January We have another full moon that was full yesterday So that's blue moon Once in a blue moon is because It doesn't happen all that terribly often The blood moon Is another interesting one It's where The earth gets in between The moon and the sun, and the only light that doesn't get, well, light kind of wraps around the earth from the sun, and the only color that doesn't get eaten up by the atmosphere is red. So it makes the moon appear red, hence the name Blood Moon. And then that obviously coincides with the earth getting in between the moon and the sun, Which causes in the West Coast, we didn't see it, but uh, which can cause, or does cause, a a lunar eclipse of a sort. There you go. Education given.
1: Much appreciated.
2: Uh, I think I'm pretty correct on all that stuff. At least I sound confident enough that most people believe I'm
1: correct. (laughs) I was going to say... Uh, whether or not you know what you're talking about or not, you certainly did sell it very well. Therefore, I'm going to go with it. Good. Just say that that is good. What, that's exactly what
0: it is.
2: Good. Good use of a word too. Stellar. We're talking about the moon, and uh, you went with stellar. I like that.
0: Well, that's, you know, of
1: that's sight, what man. we do here. That's what we do here at <laughs> kayak Christian radio. We try to educate it as much as possible on all things. <laughs> Celestial and 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 otherwise. Yeah.
2: Science. I, science. So hashtag hashtag science. science. I still don't know how to navigate by the stars, but I'll figure that out one day. I actually you need probably to get bored, I'm gonna, Yeah, I'm going to get I bored one day that. and probably figure it out. I almost guarantee. I can see myself in the next decade getting bored <laughs> enough to figure out how to navigate by the stars.
1: I'm pretty sure if you needed to, you'd be just fine.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's tricks you can use, at least to find land. You can see it down in the Keys. Yeah, oh yeah, you got to have that. There's a pretty cool phenomenon that they used uh, sailing back in the day um, to tell them where land was. That was a big thing. I mean, if you can find land, you're... You know, I mean, when you've been floating around the middle of the ocean in a freaking boat with a sail for the last two months, uh, land something you want to definitely get a hold of if you can. But, uh, you know, they use a lot of different things like uh, birds, certain types of birds only go so far from shore. Um, so if that bird is, is flying uh, or or in your vicinity, you know you're within, you know, a few miles or so of shore of some kind of of shoreline storms, obviously uh, in the, in the tropics, most islands create, create storms just like we do here on the coast of Florida. But one thing that I, that you can see, and you can see it really good down in the keys where the water is that just ridiculous blue, clear, beautiful, gorgeous color. Um, You can actually see the reflection of the water and then re- see the reflection of the land, of the greener, different kind of a different shade um, on the bottom of the kind of the white puffy clouds that you get in that, that kind of tropical environment. It's actually a pretty neat thing. You can see it from a pretty good distance, too, that blue, on the the reflection of the blue, and then the reflection of, of a land mass of something that's other than the blue. So there you go. There's some more education for you in case you ever get stuck in the ocean and you don't know where you're going.
1: Which is a good possibility, especially if you're sitting in a kayak.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, if you're off Florida in a kayak and you end up in the ocean far enough, especially off of South Florida in a kayak, Southeast Florida, I should say, uh, you better hope you don't get stuck in the Gulf Stream because you're just going for a ride. I've seen a, a i have seen aai think it was a photo of a boat that had been missing for like two years or something like that. From here, over here somewhere, and uh, ended up in Europe, floating up on the shore in Europe, like two and a half years later or three years later. Yeah, that's it's a crazy. long ride right there.
0: <laughs> yeah?
2: Yeah. It's Ocean
0: currents.
1: <clears throat> I still want to cross from Florida to the Bahamas by way of
2: kayak. You know, uh, it's not It's It's not crazy. I mean, obviously, you're not yeah, gonna dude. hop in a Hobie, a Hobie pro angler, and do it. You got to get a serious kayak. There's people that cross the no. oceans. There's people that have gone around the world in kayaks. What are you talking about? It's only the
1: Bahamas.
0: I'm
1: no, the- no, I'm crazy. talking. No, I'm talking I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about a specialty built-out kayak that also has a cabin in it and the whole thing. I'm talking about grabbing a like an, like a tandem island. Or something like that, and just go it.
2: Cruising. Yeah. Well, there you go. With a chase I'd cruise. I'd, I.
1: Yeah, I'd ride out. I'd ride out with. Uh, with you only, or somebody.
2: It's only what fifty-five miles of West End.
1: No, nah, West End. Yeah, something like that from South Florida, but. Uh, you can go to, you can get to okay. Bimini. It's like 40, 30 something, 30 something miles. I, think.
2: 40 I miles. thought it was 42
1: or 43. I don't know. Something like that. I don't know. Like I, know I know that folks 40 do it miles. with jet skis and stuff. So.
2: Me and uh, Me and uh, Butch took his arguably what has been the farthest a kayak has ever been man-powered out of Port Canaveral. We were way the heck out there. We were way out. We were like, we were only like two miles, two and a half miles short of eight A. We really? Were way out. Yeah, we were so <laughs> far out. There. It was awesome. I was up on the front, dude. We were sailing, dude. I was standing on front of the of the Ti of the Tandem Island, dude. I was standing on the bow of it, on the bow of it with with the freaking post the. Mast leaning up against a mast on my back, just riding out. Yeah, we got a good way out there. It was awesome until we were, dude. We had just basically because we went almost straight out, just a little north kick to it because that was the way the wind was kind of north. Um, so we kind of tacked into the wind and went out and just north, almost like we were just heading straight for 8A. Rounded buoy rounded buoy two got a little bit further out than buoy you know a couple miles out from buoy two and then kind of rounded to the south we were looking for cobia rounded to the south and uh then came back in because you know how the the shipping channel takes a dog leg to the south so we came Mm -hmm. back into the basically end of the shipping channel you know we were probably dead almost dead you know if you look straight in from where we're at almost almost to the pier, really, realistically, and we were going to hook back in and come up. We were about halfway up. We weren't even to the dog leg yet. And we were in the middle of a stupid channel, and there was a stupid, big old stupid boat coming out. And the wind had been, like, good all morning and all day, and then it decided at, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon to go dead flat home. So we had to basically kick the whole way back in from way out there, that kind of stuff. It was cool. We were way out. But I mean realistically we did that. It would take it would take two days though. That's the thing. You'd have to overnight it. Guaranteed. You'd be overnighting. Maybe not with a really good wind. In a tandem island with a good wind? Maybe not. With just the right wind. But
1: you better hope, you'd also you better hope to God it. there's no north wind in that <laughs> at all. You better hope and pray that there is no north wind. At all. Well, you'd
2: almost, <laughs> yeah, you'd almost need, like, oh, geez, I don't know what you need, but it would be
1: something.
2: <laughs> you'd you definitely have to, wouldn't want to try and cross the
1: stream if you had a bunch of north in it.
2: No. Well, no, you actually definitely. probably wouldn't need north in it. You wouldn't want south in it. Because the stream's going north. So if you have north no, I know. wind. So, if you have north in the wind, then the wind will be pushing you against the flow of the stream.
1: Yeah, but depending mm-hmm. upon the wind, it would also stack the stream up.
2: Oh, no, it would get ugly as shit. That's <laughs> 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 <Besides> the point. <laughs> we weren't even capturing that Because you got to have enough wind <laughs> to blow the stupid sail, so it's got to be like 10 plus. So, yeah, whatever, you know, it's just the Gulf Stream.
1: It's only 30 miles across in certain areas. Yeah, (laughs) dude.
2: You know, whatever. Pick a day that it's going slow. (laughs) I'm
1: I'm, I'm telling you right now, uh, one of the craziest days I ever had on the water out of Fort Canaveral when I had my old boat, we were out, we were were probably a good five or ten miles into the stream uh, trolling for dolphins, wearing them out, and... uh, all of a sudden the wind shifted on us from a little bit of an east wind to a little bit more of a northeast wind and it was fairly quick that 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 the ocean decided to start to stand up a bit and we went from ah uh, maybe a 2 foot ground swell nothing crazy little little wind chop mixed in to solid eight footers solid eight footers and legit eight footers to where when you come up and over the top of that little swell and you come down, you're, you're all of a sudden you're in that little wash bowl, little fish bowl of, uh, of water all around you. And it happened, I would say, within 10 minutes maybe of the wind shifting. So that was that was the fastest I'd ever seen it come up. Now, one time back in the day, Captain Jeff Brown and I uh, – thought it would be a good idea to try and cross the stream to go tuna fishing in his 22-foot angler (laughs) with a single screw on the back. Um, And we got, we were probably a good 65 miles or so out, and the wind picked up. And that was the scariest that I'd ever been, that's the scaredest I've ever been on the ocean was that return trip. Because a twenty two foot long center console is a very, 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 very small boat <laughs> when every swell around you is T top high. The ocean's not that ocean's nothing to play with. She wants to kill you. She's just trying to figure out how. I'm 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 still convinced of that.
2: Yeah, that Gulfstream, man, it's, uh, it's unrelenting, unrelenting. I'll never forget, I was, yeah, I know, it's awesome. I'll never forget the time that, uh, I was, I told the, or actually I knew the people that, the Frost that were booking everything at that time and running, running, uh, everything with the restaurant i guess basically a marina side of grills and <laughs> they got me a job on the double o when the double o was brand stanking new i mean like just off the blocks brand new um and those guys decided that they wanted to do tuna trips in the double o all the way to the other side they thought it would be a good idea it was a terrible idea horrible <laughs> at least it was a terrible idea on the the days we tried to do it because it was freaking stupid, but it was like one of those situations where you know because the boats only the boat only goes so fast, and you got to go right. you got to get so far offshore to get to the tuna. I mean, here the tuna fish the the tuna fishing we're talking about yellow fins, and in uh, that is on the the opposite side of the Gulf Stream, so. Like Chuck just said, the Gulf Stream comes from well, it comes from South Florida. Chuck just said it's about 30 miles to 40, even closer to 50 miles wide. So if you can think about it, the Gulf Stream is a river of water that flows in the ocean, basically. And it's, it's a crazy. it's a function. Yeah, the the Gulf Stream. Here, here you go. Here's some more science for you. Do you want to know what the Gulf Stream is a function of? Well, the Gulf Stream is a function of... There there you go. Not only what the Gulf Stream is, what it does, and and what it it should and hopefully will continue to do, otherwise we'll turn into a giant snowball again. Um, That's right, we'll be a snowball. Uh, The whole earth, not just us. But uh, the uh, forget global warming... But uh, the open ocean currents and the Gulf Stream's only one of multiples, not just multiples right around us, because there's a few, there's different currents, but the Gulf Stream's the one that influences us. There's multiple large currents that move water, and if you think back to science class when they told you about how a storm, a thunderstorm works, and if you live here in in the coast of Florida, you know, you know, hot replaces cold. Cold lifts, or wait, no, hot, my bad, sorry, I went went backwards. The science lesson got a little messed up. So hot lifts, cold comes in to replace. It's why we get a sea breeze every day in the summer. And then even on these, watch, tomorrow we'll get, we'll end up getting a a southeasterly that's going to come because of the heating of the land and the cool air, or the cool water. So hot lifts, cold replaces. Hot lifts, cold replaces. So in the ocean, the same thing happens, but it happens on a grand scale, and it happens in, in producing almost an engine effect that rotates and moves water from one part of a, an ocean to another. And what ours does, the Gulf Stream, is it collects water Literally, the loop current, which runs up into the Gulf of Mexico, um, runs up into the Gulf of Mexico, comes down around the tip of Florida, collects water from the Bahamas, pulls all that water together into the Gulf Stream, which shoots up the side of Florida, hits, basically hits Florida, scoots in between the Bahamas and Florida um, down at South Florida, and then comes off of our coast. It heads up to North Carolina, where it comes close to the coast, within about 35 to 40 miles, again, um, which is about what we have here, the distance from the Gulf Stream, comes close to the there, and then the Gulf Stream actually takes a right turn and goes out and is, and is the reason that Europe isn't covered in ice, like the rest of the northern European area should is. Um, it's why England and all that is, is more moderate temperature, because they have the warm water current from the Gulf Stream up and brings warmer, consistent uh uh temperatures. The Gulf Stream is a function just like I was talking about. Um hot air rises, cool air replaces underneath, uh gives you sea breeze, gives you blah blah blah. Um same same thing happens. The hot water is not just magically coming from somewhere. A hot water lifts. It rises to the surface. Well, cold water replaces underneath, and that's actually the Labrador current. So you, you're actually exchanging water from the North Atlantic. The cold water from the North Atlantic slides down and does a loop back up, and the warm water cycle of that loop is the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream goes north across, in front of our coast at anywhere from two-ish knots to up to five knots at all times. It does not stop. If it ever did stop, like I said, it would be an end-of-the-world situation. If any of the, the world's currents stop, it would probably be a cascading effect that would really be bad for all of us little ant people because that's all we really are. So, there you go. The Gulf Stream where we're at <laughs> <laughs> you learning anything yet? Right, <laughs> the man. golf science. The and golf we're stream all where we're people. at. All little ant people, man. We just run around and scurry. It's better than calling us a cancer, which we really are, but that's just not nice, so we'll go away from that. But um uh the the Gulf Stream or me and Chuck are here, um, is roughly Anywhere from 25 to 35 miles out from us. Now, if you think of the Gulf Stream, it's an actual, like I said, stream of water that's yay width wide. And it will be noticeably warmer if you look at a sea surface temperature chart of the southeast Atlantic coast. If you bring up even just a rudimentary one, you're going to see the Gulf Stream and how it rips up the side of the coast and starts pulling away. The Gulf Stream really doesn't pull away. It stays with the Continental Shelf, but the land actually pulls away. When you get up to North Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, North North Carolina, it sticks Mm -hmm. back out. Yeah, those guys up in Jacksonville, Mm -hmm. 70-mile run to get to the Gulf Stream. Oh, and that's Mm -hmm. 70-mile run to get to the Continental Shelf, to get to the drop, to get to the – the, the drop off, basically. Now, when you're in South hur- Florida, that's why
3: the hurricanes go to north. That's why the hurricanes go to North Carolina and skip South Georgia, and usually don't hit Jacksonville. Yep. They shoot right up that stream and pile in North Carolina.
2: Exactly. They feed off of that hot water. They love the Gulf yep. Stream. But yep, there you go. Science, folks. It's all science, science. scientific. <laughs> but where we're at. I never even got to the story about the the double O and this ill-fated tuna trip we decided to take.
3: <laughs> so, I'm actually, in our <laughs> yeah, I was
1: gonna say I was gonna say I really I do really want to hear this story. Uh, the
3: story. How big was the double O? How big
2: the double O is sixty-five or seventy-two. It's a it's a headboat. Um, okay. So a headboat is a party boat. For those of you guys listening that might not know a party boat that isn't just where they serve drinks and everybody listens to steel drum music, like in the islands, a party boat is fishing and you basically get to go fishing with 40 of your best friends or your not so best friends by the end of it. Um, it's uh it's a convenient way for people to get offshore that don't normally get a chance to get offshore. I actually worked as a deckhand when I was 14. I told him I was 16. Um, and, uh, and they, basically, you pay eh, anywhere from probably 45 to $75, um, depending on the boat. Yeah. Down in South Florida, they do the drift boats. It's a lot less fuel for them, so the price is a little bit cheaper. They do shorter trips, too. Um, the drift boats down south just drift along. They literally just go out to the reef edge and drift along. Uh, because, like I said, the Gulf Stream is going north at all times, and those guys are able to just pull out of Hillsborough Inlet, any of those inlets down there. They go out the you know mile and a half or whatever to get to the Gulf Stream, the actual stream, or to the drop-off, and they just allow their boat to drift. Here it's a little different um, because those guys are doing mostly bottom fishing, uh, reef fishing, anywhere from 120 foot deep to about uh, 85 foot deep, somewhere in there. Um, still within uh, Not quite to the Gulf Stream here uh, And they just anchor up And you know a bunch of people drop their lines down Well it's a big boat And there's It's got capability to do kind of a long Range trip And the reason it's a long range trip And what Chuck was talking about just a little while ago um, About taking uh, Captain Brown's 22 uh, foot angler out To the other side To the other side of the stream So if you think of the Gulf Stream as being a Uh, a a river within the ocean it has an eastern wall and a western wall the western wall of the gulf stream stays off of our coast the the southeast florida coast where we're at at about 25 to 35 miles give or take Um, now the eastern wall of that is the very outside edge of it so if you think all of this ocean is just milling around out there, and it hits this constant current. It's an amazing fishery out there. Um, I've got an, a, a caveat story that you guys will it'll kind of blow your mind as to where it came from, um, but it's a cool little story as to where that fishery came from because it is literally you do not even start fishing till 80 miles out. 70 miles if you're really lucky. Um, 80 miles is usually a break where you you start getting to the close to the eastern edge if not near it uh, or if not over it um, of the gulf stream and, and on that eastern edge you have cooler water that's running into the hot water um, it's where we go get our yellow tuna and they do it every spring here in canaveral and and at several other ports uh, kind of north of the bahamas but still in florida uh, the guys up North even run, the guys in Jacksonville. I mean, that's a hero stuff. You're talking 200 mile run one way, you know, or 170 mile run one way. Um, there's a reason why people are running, you know, giant boats with three and four engines on them. It's so that you can go 65, 70 mile an hour. But anyways, so to go tuna fishing here, you go out and you drive and you drive and you drive. Um, the Gulf Stream has a tendency to be pretty bumpy. And uh, I'll actually, I'll tell the story of the O real quick, and then I'll tell the story of why or how the, the other side tuna fishery got found. So out there on the other side, you go out, and it's the middle of, absolute middle of the ocean, 100 miles offshore or plus. There's a buoy that they have at 120 miles affixed to the bottom. Um, it's kind of like your, if it's, if it's your, your common place to kind of point to, because when you get out there, there's really no features on the bottom that you're looking for or anything like that. All you're looking for is birds, stuff like weed lines, help, things like that, debris, any of that stuff. I've been out there and pulled up on a weed line and seen more dolphin than you could ever count in a thousand years. You could have sat there and counted and counted and counted. The dolphin just kept coming. And they weren't little peanut dolphin because you're 100 miles offshore um, on weed lines that nobody's ever been near before. Those dolphins have never seen anybody. Um, You're in the middle of the ocean. Uh, So, you know, you're talking fish that were averaging... 15 to 25 pounds, somewhere in there, with bigger fish mixed in. Insane. You know, you you pull by something, a flotsam or a weed line, and you got something deep that's running a little bit fast, or you go jig it and wham, you're on wahoo almost every time. But anyways, so you go a long ways out. You look for birds. The birds follow the tuna. The tuna take the bait. They push it up to the top. The birds get to eat, and it's a whole big thing. You crank your radar up so you can see the birds and go find the tunas. And yada, yada, yada. So they had the brilliant idea to take this giant boat out there with like 20 people on it. And that they were going to troll and we were going to try to chum fish up. And we are going to try all these crazy things. Um, And we were going to go to the 120-mile buoy first. Uh, And we were going to chum the 120-mile buoy before the sun even came up. Because we actually started driving. The boat only does 20 knots or something like that. We started driving at like 5 o'clock the day before. And finally got out there an hour and a half before sunup. Well, anyways, before we got there, it was uh, the Gulf Stream, like Chuck said, can get nasty. And, uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit salty, and you know, I've been salty for a long time. And you know, I was, like I said, young, but still I had been on the boat and on boats for a long time. And um, we hit the, the Gulf Stream, was it was special. It wasn't terrible, but it was special. It made you take notice. It was rolly. And for some reason, like I said, we were headed to the 120 mile an hour or 120 mile buoy. For some reason, when we actually came out of the Gulf Stream, it was when we paid it. And it was the craziest thing. It went from being like, you know, four to six, kind of rolly, a little bit windy, to out there like six to eight and just throwing everywhere. It was craziness. Anyways, I sat there and cut chum with the other mate in the back of the boat for like two hours straight, and um, that was the first time I saw the entire cabin empty out and 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 then empty out of the cabin as soon as the guy came off the the uh, the throttles, they emptied out of the cabin and then emptied themselves. It was insane. It was uh it was a nasty puke fest. But it was not fun. So needless to say, don't do a long range trip out of Canaveral on the double up.
0: <laughs>
2: but uh, well
3: those boats, those aren't really those head boats. They're not really big water boats. It's not like you're on a sixty foot sport fisherman, you know, <laughs> that can handle that kind of stuff. You know, they're kind of low side, right. Not much, you know.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a fun trip, but. But hey, you know the, the the guys that are running actual charters out there, they get really good money for those trips, and and um, it's a it's a special fishery. It's pretty interesting. Like I said, uh, uh, the way that the fishery was found is a pretty interesting story, and um, and a lot of people know it, but not everybody. Uh, and obviously, the shuttle program started in what '82. When they started mm-hmm. actually putting, putting people in the air, no,
0: yeah, cool.
2: no, Both it was seventy nine or eighty. The shut, the sh- um,
1: not the shuttle
2: shuttle. The shuttle shuttle program. The the program started putting putting uh, shuttles up.
0: Hmm.
1: I didn't realize it was that old. I, I thought it was uh like eighty three, eighty four, eighty five. I think, I it, was, I think know, it was you would know you would know you would know much better than anybody. I mean your whole family worked at the shuttle program So the
2: actual program itself uh started in um actually seventy two. But uh Wow uh, uh
1: I'm pretty embarrassed to say that I did not know that.
2: That's, you know, I mean, that's early phases, though. We're about to figure out when the first shuttle launch was. 81 well, was the actual you. first okay. launch. Go so ahead. it took almost 10 years from the program starting. That's why I wanted to, to check when the actual first launch was. So, And they did the test launch. Actually, the first launch was the... No, the first, they did, so they had a couple other launches. This was the first manned launch, because they flew the test one a few times. Um, Anyways, a little history about the space shuttle, okay? space shuttle, everybody knows the iconic picture of it sitting on the launch pad, ready to go to space. It's a little plane-looking thing on this big orange tank, giant big orange tank-looking thing which was the external tank, ET, okay? And then on each side of that external tank, of that giant tank, were the, the white stick-looking rockets, and those were the solid rocket boosters. The solid rocket boosters are what actually put the thing into space, got it through Earth's atmosphere, okay? The external tank gave it enough fuel to get it far enough up to be able to get into the orbit that it needed to get into and then it kicked it out too so the little engines the three little engines on the back of the space shuttle were for landing and for initial thrust but the, the meat of the, the thrust that the space shuttle created to get through the Earth's atmosphere was from the solid rocket boosters the rockety looking things on each side of it so the external tank when it kicked off it just went bye bye see you later down into the ocean, never to be seen again. The external booster, or the the, the uh, solid rocket boosters, fell back down to Earth and are actually were, I shouldn't say are, were retrieved by two large ships, the Freedom Star and the Liberty, Star, Freedom and Liberty, um, the two recovery ships. So these boosters would fall out of space, big old parachutes open up, <coughs> They drop into the ocean, bob around, they actually fill full of water. And then they had uh, the ships that would chase them. And once the water, uh, once the booster fills full of water, it would go vertical in the water. So instead of being horizontal floating on top of the water, it is now, because it's an empty chamber. And it's an unsealed empty chamber. Because basically with a boost, with a rocket, all you're doing is, just like your little model rocket, you light it. You have a hole at the bottom that's small, and it forces the, the 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 force. It forces all the the uh, the power through it and Propelling. pushes it up. So propellant. There you go. Whatever. So you are in turn left with a, <laughs> uh, once the solid rocket fuel all burns out, you're left with a giant empty canister, basically, um, and it fills full of water because there's an open hole at the end of it, obviously. Um, so, solid rocket boosters fall to the ocean. Two boats chase them. Where do the two boats typically hang out? At the 120 mile or the 120-mile buoy in the middle of the ocean? Because if you think, as that space shuttle goes up off of our coast, and the Earth's wrapping around, it goes up, and then it kicks its boosters off 40, 50, 60 miles up. I can't remember exactly how high they get kicked off. kicks its boosters off. And they fall the ocean somewhere between 60 and 150 miles offshore. They fall into the water. Well, in the early 80s, they had a crew of guys, obviously quite salty, um, not only to drive boats out there and to recover them, those boosters, but also um, they had divers on board. And actually, before I got laid off, before the program ended, um, I was about to do my, my PT test um, for uh, getting certified to be a recovery diver, mostly because I wanted to get a free nitrox certification. But that's besides the point. Um, I probably would have never gotten to dive because there was, only so many, there was only so many launches left. If the program would have kept going, there's a chance I might have been able to get to dive. But it's pretty wild, too, because those things go down in the water – and they fill full of water so they go vertical like a, like a giant buoy.
3: And if, anything,
2: if you notice anything that floats in the water, it, it, you know, if there's a sea, it goes up, but it continues. Momentum continues it up. And then as it goes down, momentum continues it down. Uh, so one interesting, interesting thing is most of the time they'd be somewhere in the, the eastern edge of that gulf stream. And there were a lot of times where they couldn't recover the booster because of the seas, because the seas had to be low enough for them to be able to get to the booster uh, diving, uh, where they'd actually have to follow that thing all the way up to the Carolinas, just following it, floating along with it, nasty seas, waiting until it calms down enough for them to send the divers in. Uh, The divers actually used to, what they did was take a plug and plug it all the way to the bottom of the thing at 125 foot, and that's just static when it actually is moving with the waves. It's, it goes from 150 foot to 65 foot in a matter of seconds. Like uh, Rod, some of the videos from it, from them recovering the boosters, is pretty insane. But all the guys on those boats were all fishermen and divers. Um, I knew most of them. Uh, and, One of the most famous fishermen for our tuna fishery is Captain Ed Weyer, and he was originally, uh, I believe, working on or friends of a guy that worked on that boat. Those guys in the early 80s, late 70s, drove out into the middle of the ocean and sat there waiting for these boosters to come tumbling down and realized, oh, my goodness, we're 100 miles offshore and there's tuna jumping everywhere. (laughs) Maybe we should bring fishing poles. So they brought fishing poles, and that's where the tuna fishery came from, from the Shoto program. There you go. Pretty cool. And and famously, Ed Dwyer runs the tournament that is the tournament for going out to the other side, um, and his boat was the boat for years. Um, oh, yeah. Tuna fishing out there. The only boat doing it, really, honestly, for a lot of years. And then people got smart and realized that he was charging an arm and a leg to take clients out there to do it, and uh, they wanted in on that. So, there you go. There goes the, – that. that's how the – and honestly, that fishery isn't just our fishery. That fishery happens all up and down the eastern seaboard on that outer edge of it, and here particularly just north of the Bahamas from from about Fort Pierce up to – uh, up to jacksonville it 's a popular fishery
1: elephant i, I the highly, highly hi, I, would say I highly highly recommend anybody who has never done it to try and do it, try and find a boat to go on, try and book a trip, do something, and you have to save your save your ducats to be able to make that trip because it 's not cheap, but <clears throat> there is something. There is something truly magical about the other side of the Gulf Stream. There, there is, uh, it's, a, it's a completely different world than anything any of you have ever experienced in your lives if you've never been there. You are, you are from, from us, you're literally closer to the Bahamas than you are from home, most of the time when you stop and find your fish. It makes absolutely no sense even truthfully look at a bottom machine because these fish don't give a, a flip what's going on at the bottom. They show up uh, planet Earth slash blue planet style on a giant ball of bait, which could be anything from sardines to runners to flying fish to smaller tunas. Smaller dolphin. Basically, if it moves out there, it's going to get eaten. Something's out there that's going to eat it. Small blackfin tuna get eaten by yellow fins, yellow fins get eaten by marlin, small dolphin get eaten by bigger dolphin, bigger dolphin get eaten by marlin. But it's the other stuff you run into out there that, to me, is like so incredible. Three. Three times I've been to, three times that I have been out tuna fishing, um, I ran. We ran into pilot whales. Three times. Now I've tuna fished more than that, but uh, three trips we ran into pilot whales and a massive pod of them. And that's pretty damn impressive. <laughs> when you're out there in the middle, of, literally in the middle of nowhere, and you come across a a whole pod of pilot whales that are moving. They're not kind of cruising around being happy pilot whales. They are on a mission. And then you look up at your radar and you realize quickly why they're in such a hurry because you've got birds ahead of you, say, a mile and a half out. And by the time you reach those birds, it is the coolest looking scene that you'll ever see. I saw it, even down in Panama, which is considered the tuna coast where we were at, because it's like a yellowfin tuna nursery. All the frigate birds and all the stuff, but the the, the massive life, the massive other stuff, wasn't wasn't there like it like it is on the other side of the stream. And as Alex said, when you find dolphin over there. They tend not to be small dolphins. You rarely ever find little tiny what we call grasshoppers or, or chickens. You typically find gaffers and you know, slammers even. Uh, what's interesting though is that, at least for me, all the wahoo that I've ever caught on the other side of the stream have all been small. I've never I've never put a wahoo in a boat fishing on the other side bigger than say thirty pounds. Mm-hmm. We we'll put plenty of dolphin in the boat, bigger than that. But I, I've never really caught a lot of big wahoo out there.
2: I'll never forget the last trip that I took out there. It's been it's been a while since I've been out there. Um, we were running, we were running with some guys from the FSFA. They were really good buddies with my dad. And the the deal with finding the fish is you find the birds, and and like we were saying, you you find them with your radar. You use the open array radar. There's two types of radars on boats. You have a ray dome, which is the little bowl-looking thing upside down, and then you have the the open array radar, which is the candy bar-looking one that spins. Uh, they actually, the other one spins, too. It's just inside the dome. Um, the ray dome is good, but they're not quite as sensitive as the open array. Um, And with the open array, what you're able to do, you'll see that on tuna boats, they have that open array. And what you're able to do is you're able to turn the gain up. You're able to kind of tweak your adjustments to where a flock of birds shows up like a cloud on this thing. I mean, like, literally, it's a cloud moving around, Mm -hmm. fluctuating, moving in one direction or the other.
1: Getting smaller, yeah. Right.
2: And on some of the older radars... The new ones, I don't think you have this problem as much, the, the the target definition inside. But when you turn the gain up so that you can see birds at 25 miles from you, uh, you can see this flock of birds, you turn that gain up, it blows out everything within a mile and a half, two miles, give or take, um, but especially on the one that we're, were on this guy's boat. And it was, a, it was a cat boat. It was a pretty cool ride. It was cheap to get out there, too, because it had it had it powered just right but um no it was actually uh it was um Eric Griggs's boat oh okay Eric Eric Griggs from from the FSFA yeah. um anyways he uh like i said it was a cat boat pretty cool boat but anyways they were old guys and they had a problem in that uh even with binoculars it was hard to, for them to pick up birds <laughs> At inside of two miles and the thing with that is is you got a flock of birds it's two miles away from you headed in one direction that you've been watching them move in that direction so you've been heading to, to kind of try to head them off um and once they get inside that two miles they kind of aren't on the radar anymore it's just fuzz it's not as easy to detect them so you had to be able to visually pick up that flock of birds and if you couldn't well, there's a potential that that flock of birds could turn and go the other way. And then before you pick them up on the radar again, you're two miles in the other direction. So you're, you know, having to run a lot more. Anyways, helps to be able to see. I had good eyes, so I got the boat ride. But I'll never forget, we went out there on a full moon night, and, man, it was the biggest moon I've ever seen in that ocean. So huge when we were out there, driving forever. We'd start off at 3 o'clock in the morning, and at sunup, be out, 65, 70 miles offshore, started looking for birds. Well, we got out there and birds were everywhere, but they were laying on the surface. The tuna wouldn't do anything because they'd probably been feeding all night long or something. Um, so we were just, we were just, I mean, absolutely just skunked. Driving around the middle of the ocean and finally at like 9 30, 10 o'clock in the morning, we rolled up on the most insane weed line you've ever seen in your entire life. With patties the size of multiple houses, like like a quarter of a city block, the patties were. And the, dol- the triple tail under there were insane. The dolphin were nuts. I mean, it was just dolphin after dolphin after dolphin after dolphin. Big ones, nice fish. But we did, we ended up getting a bunch of wahoo, too. Like 12 of them, I think. And we were vertical jigging them. We went by a 55 gallon drum we found and it had every all all the rods on the boat went off with water every single thing was wahoo. ba 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 ba. We ended up losing like three lures on that that rap. And then went back by and jigged that thing and had a blast. But anyways, at like 12:30 the tuna turned on and we were like out of room, out of ice, so we got our tuna and went home. It was pretty epic.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a cool mm-hmm. place, man. It's uh, it's pretty damn special. Um, with, I've seen blue marlin out there. I saw one blue marlin out there. We were trolling for tunas. Just released a bunch of smaller ones, and uh, I got the a wild big one. blue marlin.
2: Ooh. Did you really? Yeah, it wasn't that big. That's awesome. Yeah, it that like maybe um, might have been two hundred pounds. I had a
1: uh I had a white I had a white marlin on for probably realistically forty five seconds. <laughs> it felt like uh like it felt like five minutes, but uh that fish spent more time in the air than it did in the water and I was actually kinda of thankful that it that it jumped off because I I, I wouldn't have killed it. I, I wouldn't I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to pull him in the boat. It just it was cool enough for me to see it, hook it, feel its power. Um it was really really pretty, pretty awesome. But uh yeah, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool fishery. There's no doubt. It's um it's a shame it's so far away. Uh it's a long boat ride. Right? Kind of. Yeah, it's kind of a shame. I'm kind of glad that it is because it, it can't get exploited very easily. And even during the even there in the early spring and into the beginning of summer, uh, when the other when the bigger boats can make it over there, it's not a parking lot by any stretch of the imagination. There's a, a there's a few boats that make that trip quite regularly, and, and then there's the guys the weekend guys that, as Alex said, will come down from Jacksonville to fish it, and uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty spectacular though. I mean. I've, I've, never, I've never up until doing that style of fishing, uh, the other side stuff, i would never seen anything like it. And, you know, when, you're, when your bycatch is dolphin and skipjack tuna and blackfin and, you know, all of the edible species that you don't mind catching, um, it's not a bad day. I mean, you could, you could easily fill up a box. Flap full of skipjacks and blackfins and, and dolphin in, in minute when they're when they're really on, but those yellowfin, they're, they're just that's a, that's a really really cool fish anyhow so there you go. everybody tonight learned about well early on in the show, if you joined me, you learned about ketones and uh you know the 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 dietary supplement that I'm drinking. Um, If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about that, feel free to hit me up. I'll be more than happy to tell you about it. So, so far, so good. Um, Again, my goal, hopefully, is to get down in in the 190s. I haven't seen the 190s since probably 11th grade in high school. So, that's my goal, wait. That's where I want to be. I'm sitting in the 220s right now. Uh, So we'll see how that goes But um, We also learned what a blood moon is What a blue moon is We learned all about the space program And how it started (laughs) Or how the shuttle program Kind of what happens with the shuttle when it went up How the tuna fishery was found Because of the shuttle program Thank you Alex for the history lesson Hashtag science It's been a good night
0: Yeah
1: It's oh, we learned easy. that you shouldn't spray your, uh, don't spray your vegetation in your retention ponds.
2: Yeah, don't do that.
0: Cool. Yeah.
1: You got anything else you want to? Oh, shoot, almost forgot. Um, I told uh, our buddy Mike Canine that I would, uh, I would throw this out there. Give me a second and let me find it. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah.
2: Coffee talk. Talk amongst yourselves. Coffee
1: talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it... Okay, so... Oh,
2: there you go, go ahead. I was just going to ask them if it warmed up up there yet for him. Jim got ad- abducted by aliens again.
3: No. What was this... <laughs>
1: Jim <laughs> James
2: uh, Did it ever warm up for you up that way?
3: Yeah, we got a little freezing We're in good shape
2: There you go <laughs> There you go It's a good day Something, uh, to, be, something to be happy about
1: Yeah, yeah. ladies yeah, and like gentlemen
2: If you are were... Go
1: ahead, I'm sorry
3: No, we made to 50 something degrees today, man It was awesome
1: Nice All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you are in the Space Coast area or Central Florida area, hell, if you're in Florida at all and you would like to uh, view the Fly Fishing Film Tour 2018 by uh, F3T, flyfilmtour.com. Cool. Uh, It's going to take place in Melbourne at the Premier Theater's Oaks. which is located I believe behind the Melbourne Mall that will be Sunday February the 25th 2018 Sunday February the 25th Um, yeah tickets will be available uh, at local shops I know Harry Goods Outdoor Shop last year was selling them Uh, English for Conservation and Harry Goods Outdoor Shop is proud to bring you the 2018 premiere of the Fly Fishing Film Tour in Melbourne, again at the Premier Premier Theater's Oaks 10. The event will benefit English for Conservation, a 501c3. Um, English for Conservation mission is to inspire new generations of marine stewards through education, conservation, and community outreach. Doors open at 3.40 p.m., Show starts at 4 p.m. sharp. Tickets will be $25 in advance online, and locally they will be $30 at the door, if available still. Tickets include an, an intermission with complimentary Key West Sunset Ale beer and hors d'oeuvres by Hemingway's Tavern. Intermission will also include a great raffle at the English for Conservation Merchandise uh, Oh, and anglers conservation merchandise for purchase. Your ticket stub will be good for one complimentary beer at Hemingway's after the event, as well as 20% off discount at Harry Good's Outdoor Shop. That is awesome. Um, tickets also available locally and in advance at Harry Good's Outdoor Shop. <clears throat> for information, please contact Mike Kanine at mike@anglersforconservation.org. At there you go. He is the event uh, organizer. So if you've never been to a fly fishing film tour and you're curious as to what exactly the fly fishing film tour is, it's pretty self-explanatory. Fly fishing films uh, that are submitted from all around the world and um, the folks at FET um, select their favorites. They select their favorite uh, films <clears throat> to put into the tour. If you want to host a tour, there's uh, a fee associated with it and all this kind of thing. But you can kind of choose which videos you'd like to show at your particular event. It's, uh, it's really actually pretty awesome. Um, it's amazing where the videography has come from over the years, or where it it started and where it is now as far as the the level of talent that you find um, in these films. Uh, It's not your typical, I've got a GoPro, um, watch me make a video. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of camera equipment used, including drones and everything else, to capture these uh, really, really awesome films. And, uh, yeah, every year there's a film tour uh, in Orlando as well. Uh, But uh, this one here is in our backyard, so if you feel like you would like to witness the Fly Fishing Film Tour, uh, feel free to do so. Um, Pretty awesome. So there you go. Sorry it took me so long to to do the shout-out for that, Mike, but I'll do another plug for it next week as well. Sunday, February 25th.
0: There you go. Yep. Cool.
1: That's all I got. Yeah. Oh, I want to thank uh, RCI Optics, too. Uh, RCI Optics is hooking up our boys down there in... um, uh, those Buzos They're hooking up Adam oh. And uh, e- and Eric With a pair of shades So those guys are going to be rocking RCIs Down there And uh, Looking forward to seeing <coughs> RCI optics on their head While they're out there destroying Rooster fish and everything else they catch down there
2: Yeah they've been so doing good you. Dude
1: Oh, I want to get back down there so freaking bad I can't stand it. There's few places, there's, there's, there's very few places in the world that uh, I think can capture your imagination for fishing like that, especially from a kayak angler standpoint. Because in reality, it, traveling and fishing is not an inexpensive hobby, <laughs> in case you didn't know that, people. Um, going to a place like Panama and spending a week uh, virtually in the middle of nowhere, you would think would cost a small fortune. Um, In reality, for what it is, it's it's really not that expensive. Um, I would highly recommend everybody to take a peek at Los Buzos Resort. Um, Check them out on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, Hit up uh, Adam Fisk. Um, If for any Comments, questions, or concerns you may have about going on one of those trips—we're gonna—we're entertaining the idea of trying to pull off a trip this year with Kayak Fishing Radio and getting some of our listeners to join us. But I don't know if that's going to happen this year or not. Um, We're—we'd like to see it happen, but um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in our in our <laughs> crazy lives, so we'll uh, we'll see if we can pull it off. And if we can, cool. Uh, if not, then there's always next year. Those fish aren't going nowhere. They've been there for thousands of years. So, And the beauty of that area is it's not heavily pressured. Uh, the only people that fish it are the folks at Los Buzos and the local Panamanians. The rooster fish are not kept. Nobody eats a rooster fish down there, so they're not going anywhere. They're pretty much protected. The big cuberas, same thing. Nobody really messes with them as far as table fare is concerned. They just turn the big ones loose most of the time. Um, I'm I, I would really like to get one of those giant broomtail groupers. That's what I would like to do. That in the roosterfish, of course. But um, yeah, there you go. Anything else, anybody?
3: I'm good. James. I'm solid.
1: Solid. Alex is good. James is solid. I'm fantastic. Folks, thanks for listening to us again this week. We appreciate it. And uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns about the show or guests you'd like to hear from or anything for that matter, feel free to hit us up on uh, social media, either through our Facebook page, Kayak Fishing Radio, Instagram, Kayak Fishing Radio, um, our personal pages as well. I'm Redfish Chuck, Captain Alex Goritschke. I think you're just Alex, though. Alex Goritschke, Jr.? No. What are you on in, on Facebook? Alex
2: Goritschke. Okay. And uh Junior is or, the jun- Alex Gritsky Junior is my dad. Because I stole uh, Alex Gritsky.
1: Gotcha. And I'm a third. <laughs> You're a third? Yeah.
3: I, I did not know that.
2: Yeah. Grandpa's name's Alex. Oh. My name's Alex. Oh. Yeah, there you go. My brother's name's Daryl. My <laughs> other
1: brother's name's Daryl. His name's Daryl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway,
2: cool. You want to go on a charter with Captain Ellis? How do you do it? 321-480-3255 or hit me up at locallinescharters.com. Sweet.
1: All right, folks, thank you so much again for tuning in. Take kid fishing. They are the future of our sport. We will talk to you again next week. God bless. See you. <laughs>